Welcome to the Mode Knit Yarn Podcast. In each episode, Annie Modisette, that's me, or Kathleen Pescuzzi, my partner, or both of us will chat with some cool person from the knitting world, someone you may have heard of, or perhaps just someone down the street who we think you'd enjoy meeting. Our seventh podcast is with the unparalleled and very colorful Lucy Neepy. I love Lucy. One of the first knitting classes I took was with Lucy Neepy at Stitches back in 2001, and I've loved her ever since. It's an extraordinary thing that I feel I can call her a friend, but she's so darn friendly that it's easy to fall in love with her. We begin mid-chat about her decision to enter the Merchant Navy in the late 70s. We talk about her world travels on board ship and how she began knitting and was compelled mid-Pacific to steer her own course with her needles. Lucy's known for so many wonderful knitting inspirations that listing them would be an exercise in futility. So I highly recommend that you visit her website, lucyneatbeatdesigns.com, and check out her many classes, books, patterns, and options for learning incredible skills. So you grew up in Chichester? Not really. I moved all over the place in the UK, but... um... Were your parents in, like... No, they just, I mean, England's a very tiny country. No, I and, I mean, moving that. all over the place is actually, you know, maybe moving two hours you yeah. know, to, to somewhere else. But that might as well be a different different world. Yeah. But the last, my last years when I was at high school, I was in, I went to school in Chichester and I lived by, by the ocean. And at high school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, whether I was going to go to university or why I was going to go to university. And then I went to a job fair one day and... Just the year before, uh, I thought about I thought about the navy, but at that time women couldn't go to sea; they could still only be assistants on shore. They could be a wren and they could work ashore, and that really didn't appeal to me. Um, and I discovered that the merchant navy, with the advent of the Equal Opportunities Act, could no longer not take women. And as soon as I discovered this, there was a merchant navy stand there, and I picked up brochures from various shipping companies. And I applied immediately to several of them. And very quickly, by return of post almost, I got an interview with Ocean Transport and Trading up in Liverpool. And that, for me, was a big trip. So I went up to Liverpool for the interview, which was, that was an adventure in itself. And um, was this? 78. 78. Well, it might have been, yes, 1978. And uh, I was offered a place in a four-year apprenticeship at sea. And I, that was it. I was, that was what I was going to do, so I accepted. So I stayed on and finished my last year of school. Mm-hmm. I went sailing for three weeks at the end of school, and then I went up to Liverpool and began my apprenticeship. And an apprenticeship in those days consisted of we had three weeks at the company training base where they inoculated you with all sorts of nasty diseases, made sure you could swim by throwing you in a swimming pool, taught you how to use a fire extinguisher, made sure you had a bank account, warned you about the naughty ladies in port. Um, Generally, it was three weeks of life-proofing, and then you went to sea, so... (laughs) They should do that for every... every It's not a a bad course, yeah. Everyone should learn that when they're teenagers. Yeah, and of course, it was... uh, There was one other girl, uh, and all the rest were guys. It was very novel, having any females at all. And uh, so it really was totally geared to guys, yeah. Um, which is fine. Uh, 
So after three weeks, you were allocated your ship. So this is a moment of great anticipation as to what your ship was going to be. Uh, and I wound up heading to Cherbourg by ferry to catch um, a, a car carrier called the Hellenus. And so this was huge monster-looking ship that carried 4,007 cars. That was her full load. And I joined her in Cherbourg and uh, began my, my career at sea. Uh, and your first two years of your apprenticeship, you, you're the lowest life form on the ship. The only thing you're actually allowed to squash is a cockroach. Um, you worked for, the, worked for the bosun as a sailor on deck um, you did well. You worked for anyone that told you to work. Right. Um, <laughs> but most days you were working as a sailor. You were chipping, painting, greasing, checking the lifeboat, and you actually, as a cadet, had a, a blue book with a list of tasks that you had to accomplish. Um, and so you were always looking to make sure you'd done as wide a range of work on the ship as possible. You also ended up working out lookout watches on the bridge. Uh, so en essentially anyone could tell you to do anything and you had to do it. What were you looking out for? Oh, um, in the case of being lookout, bridge lookout, you'd be up on the bridge, out in the weather. Um, this would be around Europe and we were an extra lookout for ships. It's large. It was largely academic and more, more an exercise in suffering than really being much use. But it was also, I think, uh, remembering back to that ship... She was a modified bulk carrier, and they'd put on this great big steel superstructure, so you couldn't really clearly see from the bridge anymore. Um, the deck was so high that they didn't actually have a clear view around the bow, um, and we were actually on our way to Japan to um, deliver cargo, but also to have another level of bridge put on the ship so they could see better. Um, and so until they got this new bridge they needed extra lookouts so we were spotting ships and reporting them to to the bridge below us um did you ever like see anyone who was a castaway or something or like <laughs> save anybody like oh look there's uh no i didn't on that on that <laughs> ship um we did on a later ship uh, which was trading down to west africa it was just at the start of the piracy right and it used to be when you went down to West Africa, you would get to probably Port Harcourt outside in Nigeria, and you'd anchor off for maybe a week, maybe a month, waiting for your berth in port. And at that point, people were coming out in dugout canoes and shimmying up the anchor cables and starting to raid the ships. And so by the time I was going down there, the ships were no longer allowed to anchor. You'd get down to Port Harcourt, and then you would slow speed st steam out to sea, out into the Atlantic. And then you'd turn around and you'd slow speed steam back in. And it was very boring. It's a bit like being in an airport holding pattern for about a week. Uh, and of course, there were many other ships also doing this. So it was, it was a real pain to be on watch and, and navigating the ship. Um, and stooging up and down and we would rig lights over the side and run have um, fire hoses rigged all over the deck so if you saw a boat approaching you you could you could aim at it with a fire hose and um, and so you didn't put your anchor down but that was the start of sort of the piracy really taking hold they weren't terribly organized but there there were reports of ships being raided with with weapons and 
and you had no defence, so all you could do was keep moving. Um, Did you see the movie? You saw the movie Captain Phillips. I, I've read the book. Ah. <laughs> yes, and it, it's truly horrible. I mean, and I mean, a merchant ship is just a giant treasure chest with civilians on board. It's not geared for defence. Yeah. It's not geared for its own protection, um, and they're very slow moving. Uh, so yeah, they. Re- they represent I, such wealth as well in such poor countries. You know. yeah. I've, I was terrified when I saw them. I've just found it terrifying. So. Yes. We, no, we were always very on alert if you went through the Malacca Straits. That was renowned for, for piracy. Um, touch would I. Well, thankfully, I never had any trouble. <laughs> but, oh, my goodness. But one of the things we used to have issues with, or it was challenging, when you went down the coast of West Africa... Uh, there would be fleets and fleets of little tiny wooden dows out fishing. And all you could see on the radar was just this speckle of teeny little boats. Um, and it was very, very difficult. I mean, obviously, we, you, you tried to avoid them, um, but they were very unpredictable in their course and navigation. So, it, you know, that was something you were always very aware of, that there might be little boats. But I never actually... Uh, witnessed any any distress or actual accidents but you know it's something you're very careful about did you knit at the time yes (laughs) (laughs) i'd been knitting for a couple of years um in high school but at that point what i would do before i set off on a voyage because we'd be away for about six months you had your two suitcase allowance um and I would go to a yarn shop and say, I want the yarn and the needles to knit this. And at the time, I was doing quite a lot of filled R patterns. Um, and so I, I just had the yarn and the needles, and I'd go off to sea in six months later. So I wasn't, get, I wasn't as productive or as prolific. That, that wouldn't last me long enough now. But I did get into the hang of knitting on much finer, finer yarns and needles because, A, it's economical, and B, it lasts you longer. And But I think it's also where I started to puzzle out how how things worked because there really wasn't anyone else on the ship I could ask. Um, so like you figured out things like cables and stuff yourself and, or did you already do that? Um, to be honest, I can't remember the cables, but yes, I mean, I remember there was one pattern that I had and I just couldn't make it work and I think it was to do that I was doing my yarn overs backwards mm. and then when I knitted them then I, I was Twisting. inadvertently closing them. Uh, and it took me a while for the penny to drop, but I, I do remember solving that one on that particular ship. But, you know, I had to, had to work it out myself, uh, which was good. Yeah, I, when I began knitting, I was in a vacuum also. I was working in Texas uh, at a printing plant, and I would go to work at, uh, like, noon on a Saturday. I'd work straight through until Sunday night or, or noon on Monday, depending on what the close of the magazine was. Mm-hmm. So, like, when Tiananmen Square happened, that was the same weekend that the Ayatollah died. So we didn't actually close the magazine until almost Tuesday because there were so many reports coming in. Yes. And I had to be there because I received the pages. They were sent via satellite, and I had to Mm -hmm. output them with the scanner as film and then run that down to the printing plant, and they would make the plates and print the magazine. So since I was there for like 24, 36 hours, I would just knit. Yes. And I I was there for a year. I did so much knitting, and it was the same thing. I mean, I guess there was a community I could have reached out to, but the one... Yarn shop I visited, the woman was not not kind, and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, I just felt like many new knitters. I felt really overwhelmed to go in someplace and say, 
I don't know how to do this. Yeah. And so I figured it out myself. Yes, and, and being stuck in the middle of the Pacific with only one kind of yarn <laughs> and one, you know, you, you, and there was no communications in those days. Um, I mean, there was no internet on ships. There was no, uh, if you wanted a phone call, um, it was a satellite phone call with by special arrangement with a radio officer. And really, you only did that if someone was dying at home. Um, it was not good news to get any form of communication um, other than letters at mail calls. What did your family think about you doing this? I think they were quite worried. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did, did they let on, or did they just let you? Let you oh do no! I mean, fortunately, I was the third child, so I figured that, that by that point, you know, they they figured that you'll probably survive. You're um, and in fact, my dad was very proud once I'd been away and come back, and actually hadn't got a parrot and a wooden leg. Um, uh, so yeah, he he was he was very proud. Uh, oh but I think they were a bit surprised, but. Then again, I think they'd got a little bit used to me doing somewhat somewhat strange things, so I, I evidently wasn't going to conform. So, what did your two older siblings do? Um, one one was a nurse and then became a midwife, and my other sister, you know, she did food science at university. Uh, she's now a professional photographer, but she then was a dairy farmer's wife for a very long time, or a dairy farmer very for nice. a long time. Um, so yes, they, they living living the archer's dream. Yes, yes, absolutely <laughs> devoted fan of the archers. I haven't listened for many years, but I was. <laughs> well, it's 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 bad. I mean, it's good, but it's, it's there's a real plot thing going on now that's yeah. very. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly haven't listened Helen's listened being for years. Used by Rob. Uh, so she so she shivved him with a knife. Oh dear. She's in jail and Rob's in the hospital. Oh dear. Oh oh yes. I might so, have to go back about ten years to catch there's up. There's the Archer's update. I know <laughs> Helen. You're like who? Who the frig is Rob? Because Rob just appeared. A few yes, I was going to say I don't know about Rob. Yeah, um, Helen is the Archer's niece. Yes. You know. Vaguely. Yeah. Vaguely. Um, the one who had anorexia. Uh, but I'm sorry. After <laughs> after my time, yeah. <laughs> I've only been listening for like five or six years, so I'm. Yeah, Franklin Habit is a devoted fan of, <laughs> oh, of I the know. Archers. I saw that. Yes. I didn't realize that. My, when, when we first emigrated to Canada, my niece, bless her, used to record the Archers for me on cassette tapes. And every few months, she would mail over a bundle of cassette tapes, and I would listen to them on my Walkman. Um, and my, my husband, bless him, shortly after we moved, he even bought a shortwave radio so that I might be able to listen to the archers. The only thing is they didn't put the archers on the world service. Oh. Um, so the only way I could get the archers was via my niece, but it was she did that for quite a few years. Well, um, what you may not know, which is really great, is they do the archers omnibus every week as a podcast. So it's really easy to listen to. Yes, I, I mean, these days it would be very easy. It's so just easy. sort of slightly fallen off my radar. Yeah, it's just um, been, you, you don't have to listen every day. Because yep. up until a couple of years ago you did. But yes. now you can just hear it the week But the there, there always was the Sunday. Uh, they, they did, oh, did on, they on, the, the on Radio 4, they did a Sunday oh, omnibus. But it was, it was like, Radio 4 in, in England, so oh, wow. but not accessible to the rest of the world. But, oh, well, that's... Well, see. Yeah. I forget when I heard it the first time, but I think Guy Gilpin is a big fan. Yes. Because I remember I was in her car, we were driving someplace, and it came on, and we were like... I've got to have silence now. We were it's right, yeah. both doing the head dance that you do when the archers come <laughs> And I can't... I know when I'm not to ring my sister, because she's listening to the archers, yes. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear what, the, what happens with Rob and Helen, because... 
Let me tell you. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, See, so we're on the ship. Went to Japan. How many, grand total, how many ships did you work on? Mm, 10, 12. Wow. Um, and they were all different types of ships because that was, each time you finished a, a spell on a, a particular ship, um, you'd, you'd get a week's leave for every month you were away after, after a voyage. Um, and then next, your next voyage, maybe it's not as much, maybe it's 10, I don't know. Um, and then your next voyage, you would hope to get a different kind of ship because, again, you're looking for this breadth of experience. Right. You know, if you learned uh, about derricks and general cargo, then a tanker would be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and container ships and roll-on, roll-off ships. and They, they all have different equipment and different maintenance issues and different challenges is a roll-on roll-off is that for like really big equipment or yes the roll-on roll-off i was on um they would go pick up these sort of super motor yachts in um taiwan and they would be loaded on board the rear ramp using uh, a forklift a 15 ton forklift a really big forklift and we all had to learn to drive forklifts um, and uh, then we went through uh, Taiwan and Korea and Japan loading cargo. I mean, this to give you an idea about how 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 big this ship was. I think it was thirteen stories to the bridge, and it, this ship actually had an elevator um, to get from the lower lower cargo deck all the way up to the different levels on the ship to the bridge. I mean, this ship was seriously large, Panamax which means, you know, it, it will go through the Panama Canal, but just. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a very big and interesting ship with all kinds of odd-shaped cargo, and then she'd be containers on deck because they were protected. The, the boats are mostly kept below decks. Right. Um, so so don't get bumped around. And she, was, she, did, she went around the world every three months. Um, sort of. Well... What's what's the boat, the ship you look back on most fondly? The old ships. Um, one of them, which I had a, a wonderful time on, was a ship called the Magda Josefina, and she was actually the ship that I well, the first time I ever went to Canada was uh, to join the Magda Josefina. We flew to St John, New Brunswick, and joined the ship there, and then we went down to Mexico and to Veracruz, and then round the Yucatan Peninsula. We loaded enough string, and I think because one does, you guys calculating based on the size of these balls of string, it was enough string to tie around the world three times. Um, it was actually string. Yeah, it was actually yeah. That was our cargo was bales of string, um, and uh, it said on the wrapping well how much string was in each bale, and of course you know you calculate and you work out that you've loaded just loaded enough string to tie the world up three times. You could have knitted quite a bit on that trip. You, yes. Yeah. Um, and that, that ship went up and down the east coast of, of the States and up to Canada. Um, and it was kind of fun because we actually got to visit the same ports a couple of times and you got to know people in the ports and you, it sort of it made, it, made each port like home. Um, and I, I collected things whilst I was at sea, bits of fabric... Um, pottery, curios, rugs um, that then have led to knitting designs later. Um, I wasn't. I didn't spend my time scouring the world for knit shops. I wasn't quite as voracious, uh, but I did pick up textiles and anything I might find in a native market, um, and brought those home with me. 
I have a lot of I've got a lot of wooden African elephants from Takaradi. Um, where's Takaradi? <laughs> in Ghana. Um, and that, that was a that was a lovely port of call. Um, I, I'm, I, I have no idea about you in this background. This is so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of slightly unlikely. I never anticipated spending my life knitting, um, although I did a lot of knitting at sea. And yeah. then one of the ships I sailed on after I qualified, um, I got a job as a second mate on a tanker. Um, I got the job because the skipper had six sisters. Now, I only found this out afterwards. At the time, the shipping industry was in major recession, and... I, I actually lost my job when I finished my apprenticeship because the company no longer required nearly as many qualified officers. And so I was out looking for another job. And the pile of applications for the job of second mate on this little coastal tanker was about an inch thick. Um, they had that many letters of application. And I was the only female. And the skipper, who had a good sense of humour and six sisters, um, said, well, why don't we have a girl for a change? And that was how I got the job. Um, and I worked on that ship for a couple of years, and um, I used to I we go up the road and uh, by by yarn. It was I was based out of Milford Haven was the home port for that ship. Um, I'd buy yarn and I would keep knitting things. And he had a sister that it would fit, um, so he kept buying yarn. I kept knitting things, and I kept knitting the things I wanted to knit. So, but it didn't matter what I knit. He always had a sister of the appropriate size. So I owe his sisters a great debt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. Did you ever meet any of them? I didn't. No, no. The people nice see lives and their home lives are very, very separate. Yeah. Um, and especially on the coast, there's a lot of rolling stones who who have actually become disconnected from their families. I found that there was it was kind of sad at times yeah. that people had lost touch with their families and they you know they lived on a ship, but the second you leave a ship, you're no longer connected with it. Um, it's your home and your people and your family whilst you're on it. Uh, but the second you sign off, there's no more, no further connection. It's very strange. That is strange because mm. it seems like it would be so intimate. Yes, I mean, we, I still know a few people from when I was at sea, but you know, they they scattered to the winds. Uh, mariners, I think, learned to be learned to be mobile. Um, but last summer, I was over in England, and actually, we met some some folks that we were at sea with because uh, I met my husband at sea as well. How? <laughs> well, we were on the same ship for six months, so I did eventually get to meet him. <laughs> but then we, then we How were. I've seen you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we had our first date in um, our actual date off the ship in Osaka. Um, Where's that? In Japan. And, oh, Osaka. Yeah, Osaka. Oh. Oh, however one pronounces no, it. No, no, I, I thought you said. Yeah, we were in dry dock there, so we had long enough to actually get off the ship. Um, and I, uh, the, fir the first meal we ever went out for was in a real Japanese restaurant with absolutely no English whatsoever. So we had to take the waiter outside to point at the plastic food in the window to indicate nice. what we were going to eat. Um, nice. And so that was the first time we ever went out together. Um, and then we were, I don't know, apart for about a year. Um, and... Yeah, so it was a very, very distant, <laughs> distant, long-distance relationship. Did you have any contact when you were apart for a year? Um, only letters. Letters. And that's a letter from my ship to, to the head office, which then sends it out to his ship. So 
a, a considerable time lag, and John is definitely not a letter writer. <laughs> um, what was the transition then from ships back to land and then to knitting? Well, I finished my apprenticeship um, and actually got married at the end of my apprenticeship because oh. I was at, at college. Um, we had to do periods at nautical college. So after spending a year or two, a year and a half on deck as a sailor, then you went to college for six months and did navigation, meteorology, seamanship, you name it, maths, and celestial navigation. And then you went back to the ships again, and this time you were slightly higher than the, than a, a midshipman. You were now a cadet officer, and you spent most of your time on the bridge, doing bridge watches, navigating. Um, you still had deck duties as well, and tying up and untying, and cargo watches. Um, and then after 18 months or so of that, you then went back to college again and finished off your your professional exams and more, more college time. Um and I knew that I was going to be ashore um, for Easter, and I knew that the college would have Easter break, so we actually got married on an Easter Saturday because I knew I'd be ashore and he, John could plan his life to actually be there um, because he was at sea as well, uh, but he had a little more control over his life than I did. Um, so after being at sea with them, then, um, much to my surprise, he took a job ashore um, running a tugboat or running the engineering side of a tugboat company and when I well I, I moved from job to job but we ended up moving now to Milford Haven and I went to sea and he stayed ashore um. probably leads to a very happy marriage <laughs> uh, yes we're not really used to be spending too much time together exactly <laughs> kind of ease into it into yes yes um, yeah so then I, I stayed at sea until I was pregnant with my son. Um, and, uh, so you had to come back at least once for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I saw him occasionally. That's good. <laughs> um, and then after that, I, I was shore-based, and yeah. I would work up at the Coast Guard occasionally, which is a sort of volunteer position, but I'd sit there knitting socks, listening to the emergency radio, um, so that if anyone shouted mayday, 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 then, you know, you know, the person answering your mayday call is sat there knitting socks. Um, that's comforting in itself. Exactly. At least mayday, they're awake. Mayday, mayday, I have a hole in my sock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when did you move over to Canada? Um, I suppose, relatively speaking, it wasn't that long after that because the children were six, three and 18 months when we moved over. Um, we were still living in Milford Haven and they wanted somebody to build a new tugboat for the, for the company he worked for. And I looked up, he, he said, well, what, how do you feel about moving to Halifax? And I said, well, hang on a minute. And I looked it up in the back of the Rowan book and I said, look, they've got a Rowan stockist in Halifax. We could go. Um, <laughs> all joking aside, that was all I knew. One of the draws for me in the Twin Cities is, I think at the time there were like 35 yard shops in the huge area. So I was yeah. like, well, gotta go there. Yeah, you understand. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly, yeah. Totally. So I basically emigrated on the strength of there being a yarn shop. In fact, by moving to Canada, I moved nearer to a yarn shop than I was living in, in Wales. Um, oh, wow. So, you know. <laughs> That's a good reason to move. Yeah. Very good reason. And you've been blissfully happy ever since in Canada. It's been challenging at times, but um, <laughs> yes, I, would, I wouldn't move back permanently to the UK. Um, 
Yes. It's, uh, uh, although the when I first got to Nova Scotia and I had the address of the yarn shop and we were living in a hotel with the with the children, three small children in a oh in a, two hotel rooms, oh um, in March in Nova Scotia, um, greatly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> and so one day we went out looking for the yarn shop. So we were walking walking around town. These poor kids had no mittens and no hats because they come from England, and all they're selling in the shops in Canada by March is summer gear, um, even though it's still snowy and cold. Uh, anyway, we we the great day set we occurred and we set out looking for the yarn shop and I got to the address of the yarn shop only to find it was gone. I was so gutted that I didn't even think to go in and say well what happened to the yarn shop that used to be here. They had actually moved to the other side of town oh. but but I didn't I mean I was just I just emigrated under false pretenses I mean at that point. It's a good job they didn't give me a, a two-way ticket. Um, and then later on in our, because of course every day you'd have to get up and take, walk them until they were subdued. Um, and, uh, one day we did actually stumble upon, upon the yarn shop and, um, that was, that's the fleece artist when it was in, when it was a retail store in Halifax. And, uh, then the fleece artist became my sort of touchstone. And then eventually, I don't know how long after that they asked me if I would uh, think about teaching some knitting classes, and the rest, as they say, is history. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. I love love fleece artists, and I love handmade, and mm-hmm. I just love love their fibers, love their colors. Yeah, just well, they were they were very very helpful in in my transition into becoming. That's so good to hear. Yeah, I love hearing. Um, that. And then we it, we used to start have well we used to have dyeing days. We I started a knitting group locally. Um, and we would have a potluck out at Catherine, uh, Catherine Thomas's house, um, fleece artist owner, and um, and then we started having impromptu dye days out there, and then that probably independently led to the fleece artist becoming a dye house rather than a retail store. Um, so it's all sort of what goes around comes around, yeah. um, and uh, Catherine's daughters are now running. Handmaiden right. and fleece artist, uh, which is wonderful. It is. It's, um, really it's a dynasty. Um, I love that, and I love that it's a it's a matriarchal dynasty. Yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's fascinating. That's. I mean, you you must miss being out at sea. I get very sort of homesick when I see a ship. Um, it's as a cargo ship that yeah. they they definitely hold a great appeal. Um, my husband still works with tugboats, um, so yeah. I do I do see modest ships for yeah. once in a while, but it does make me want to wish to be properly qualified again and actually be able to go to sea. But uh, how long has it been? Um, oh well, it's back. My son's thirty, so don't not sure how that happened, but um, I don't know what happens either. I really yeah. don't. What now? You said this year, or hopefully coming up, what you'd love to do is the uh, canal boat. Yes, yes, if I've developed. A lot of the major things that happen in my life happen with one moment of epiphany, it seems. Uh, you know, the, the day I decided I was going to see, um, the day I decided that I would accept the offer of marriage. So I wrote a letter and I, I accepted the offer by, by post. So I got engaged by post. That's very sweet. Um, and um, the. We went to a wedding in Yorkshire a couple of years back, a family wedding, and we we try. If we go to England, we try and see all our family, 
And so we rented a house and just sort of invited everybody to come and stay after the wedding and hang out and have a good time. And my sister-in-law said, well, why quite, this was such an innocent thing, she said. Why don't we have a day out from Skipton and we can rent a narrowboat for the day? And I didn't even know you could rent a narrowboat for the day. And I mean, I'd only ever seen them in pictures. Um, anyway, we went to Skipton and we rented this half-sized narrowboat. It just has a picnic table and a gas stove and a, a toilet. Um, and we potted along the canal and you had to open bridges. And one minute we were in, on the canal and the canal was crossing over a river and there was a mainline railway train going over the top of us and I was talking to a cow at the same time, <laughs> eye to eye with a cow. <laughs> and I'm going, this is really amazing. And then you think that these canals were built in the 1800s and you look at the brickwork on the bridges and one minute you're sailing through a bluebell wood and the next you're in the back of this medieval town and looking up at Skipton Castle. It just absolutely blew me away. So... The next thing was, well, let, next year, why don't we rent a narrowboat for a week and go over for a holiday and see the family? And we found this was a much better way to see the relatives because we could, we could take them with us each for a few days. And so we became this sort of revolving door of visiting relatives and we'd tell them whereabouts we were going to be because a narrowboat only travels at three miles an hour, so we weren't exactly a fast-moving target. Um, so we did the Langothlin Canal and the Ponticillid Aqueduct, which is... Oh, 172 feet above mm -hmm. the valley floor, which was really great fun. Um, and the scenery and the history oh. just absolutely captivated me. So the next year we went for two weeks. Oh, um, and, yes, yeah, so my, my, I'm hoping my, in my future plans are spending some much longer periods on the canal. One of my dreams that I want to do, we went to Amsterdam two years ago, mm -hmm. and of course it's beautiful and canal boats and all that. I would love to do a knitting and biking trip mm -hmm. with a group of people. And like people who want to ride their bikes, they ride their bikes and meet up at some place that evening. People who want to stay on the boat, stay on the boat and knit all day. You know, the trouble is I'd want to do both. I know, um. you switch, switch back and forth. <laughs> One day you bike ride, one day you stay on the boat. Yeah, that's a good combination. But I think that'd be great because, you know, every time there's a group like that, there's there are husbands or significant others along who aren't knitters, but they want to do something. Yes. And there are people maybe who aren't set up to ride a bike all day. Yes. You know? And yep. I, I have been, let, let's do that. No, I've been wanting to do that for so long. I was thinking Amsterdam, I don't even know why the British canals didn't have, it would be a little more complex because they don't it's have the bicycle. well. A lot of people there is bicycling going on on the towpaths these days. Right. Um, so I think it would be possible. It would be the thing is the boats don't accommodate very many people. Mm -hmm. um, so it it would be a little tricky. I haven't yet found a way to combine narrow boating and and knitting, mm -hmm. um, but I'll be working on it. <laughs> Please keep me posted. Yeah. Well, I, I aim to blog from the canal intermittently, um, oh. and you know I aim to keep on knitting. And in fact, I'm already thinking about the kind of projects I can take with me. And I think quilting is fairly much out unless I go for hand piecing, and I'm not really into that. So it Are might be stitching and knitting. Crazy quilting at all? Are you? A, yes, but. You see, the spaces are really limited on a boat. This boat is six feet ten wide at the max. So that leaves you about sort of five feet 
10 inches within the boat. Yeah. That's not even long enough to put a bunk across the boat. You're back to fine yarns again. Yeah, back to fine yarns. Well, fortunately, double-knit blankets, because one of those keeps me knitting for about six months. And so I think that would be no hardship. Um, no, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was reading a really great biography of Wedgwood mm-hmm. and how what an impact he had on the canal. We went past the Wedgwood uh, Museum, but it was uh, closed. <laughs> We, really? we actually got off. The, we actually got off the boat, tied up, He's one of my heroes. Um, and went went to see the Wedgwood factory, which they have just re redone the museum. Yeah. Um, and we were there about a week before it opened last season. Oh, mm. but we yeah. went through the potteries last year. We you don't realize um, what a forward thinking person he was. Mm-hmm. You know, just amazing. It was fascinating going through the potteries and sailing past all the kilns, and there's still some working potteries. And we stopped and went they to have, the Emma Bridgewater. And, and they still have the beehive kilns. Yes, yeah, and they're pres- they're preserved. Yeah. Um. I mean, but I mean, some are still functioning. Some are still functioning. Yeah. yeah. Um. And quite a f- several of the potteries are still functioning. We stopped at the Emma Bridgewater pottery and and visited that, which was was lovely. Of course, she uses color. Um. <laughs> They had a program on the BBC this year. I don't know if it had been on before, but it was called the Great, the Great Throwdown, mm-hmm. and it was like the Great British Bake Off, right? But with potters. Oh, really? Okay. And they did a lot of the filming mm-hmm. at you know, um, I can't think of the name, but various pottery locations that yeah. are you know historically significant. Mm. It was what a great show. Yeah. I'm not a potter at all, but I I appreciate a good mug. I, yes. Oh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Need a good tea mug. But you know, when I came here to visit the first time, I think what really sold me on moving here was Jenny the Potter was at Yarnover, mm-hmm. and we met and we began chatting, and she volunteered to just take me around and drive me around, and she did. Mm-hmm. And by the time we finished our first day, I was like, I want to move here. And she said, Funny thing, my husband's a realtor. <laughs> so we ended up moving here, and he very kindly showed us like 8,000 houses because he was really a mensch about it. But um, I, I, well, I love pottery, but I always think of it very fondly because it's kind of what got me here. Yes. Yep. You know. so it's, it's always interesting looking back to see the things that led you in a particular direction. And so much of it is serendipity and sheer... Um, I couldn't believe when I called him and I called my husband and said, um, we need to move here. And he was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is with us in the room. Um, that's why... We're only oh. saying nice things about Jerry today. Oh, I, I do have to go up and pack. Oh, Jerry's packing. You know how we met. I called into a radio game show, and I got on the air, and they teamed me up with a guy named Tom, and we won all the prizes. And so he was listening, and he heard the radio show, and he thought I sounded nice. And he sent a letter to the producer, and she forwarded it to me. That's too funny. And I read this letter, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And I showed it to all my married friends, and they said, I would stay away from him. <laughs> and I showed it to all my single friends, and they said, oh, you should definitely call him. But I didn't call him. I sent him a Christmas card. And um, I was on the radio show right around Thanksgiving. We corresponded in early December. We had our first date December 23rd. And we had moved in together like within three months, and we were married. That's amazing. We were married that August. Yes, that's 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 wonderful. Twenty, twenty three years ago. Yeah, twenty three years ago. So we're very lucky. 
means our daughter must be getting older. Our daughter has to be getting older. Yes. Strange, isn't it? I don't know what's got into that girl. She just gets older and older every day, and I stay the same. Yep. It's fortunate, so. yes. Um, thank you. I really appreciate you letting me take you. I know it's, it's uncomfortable. It's like, oh, let me take you. And I'll try to That's okay. You it's just, it was, I could tell it's going to be such a great story. Like, I need to get this. Thank you. Oh, it's much less contrived. You've been listening to the Modenit Yarn Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed it. The music in the show is Manchester Mystery by Brett Van Donsel, used with Creative Commons license. Sign up at iTunes to hear all of our podcasts, and you can visit our website at www.modenityarn.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter, all using Mode Knit Yarn. Copyright 2016.